0: chapter 6 of sentimental education by gustave flaubert this librivox recording is in the public domain blighted hopes ruined stripped of everything undermined he remained seated on the bench as if stunned by a shock he cursed fate he would have liked to beat somebody and to intensify his despair he felt a kind of outrage a sense of disgrace weighing down upon him For Frederick had been under the impression that the fortune coming to him through his father would mount up one day to an income of 15,000 livres, and he had so informed the Arnoux in an indirect sort of way. So he would be looked upon as a braggart, a rogue, an obscure blackguard, who had introduced himself to them in the expectation of making some profit out of it. And as for her, Madame Arnoux, how would he ever see her again now? Moreover, that was completely impossible when he had only a yearly income of three thousand francs. He could not always lodge on the fourth floor, have the doorkeeper as a servant, and make his appearance with wretched black gloves turning blue at the ends, a greasy hat, and some frock coat for a whole year. No, no, never! And yet, without her, existence was intolerable. Many people were well able to live without any fortune, de Laurier among the rest and he thought himself a coward to attach so much importance to matters of trifling consequence. Need would perhaps multiply his faculties a hundredfold. He excited himself by thinking on the great men who had worked in garrets. A soul like that of Madame Arnoux ought to be touched at such a spectacle, and she would be moved by it to sympathetic tenderness. So, after all, this catastrophe was a piece of good fortune, like those earthquakes which unveil treasures— it had revealed to him the hidden wealth of his nature but there was only one place in the world where this could be turned to account paris for to his mind art science and love those three faces of god as pellerin would have said were associated exclusively with the capital that evening he informed his mother of his intention to go back there madame moreau was surprised and indignant she regarded it as a foolish and absurd course it would be better to follow her advice namely to remain near her in an office frederick shrugged his shoulders come now looking on this proposal as an insult to himself thereupon the good lady adopted another plan in a tender voice broken by sobs she began to dwell on her solitude her old age and the sacrifices she had made for him now that she was more unhappy than ever he was abandoning her then alluding to the anticipated close of her life "'A little patience, good heavens! You will soon be free!' These lamentations were renewed twenty times a day for three months, and at the same time the luxuries of a home made him effeminate. He found it enjoyable to have a softer bed and napkins that were not torn, so that, weary, enervated, overcome by the terrible force of comfort, Frederick allowed himself to be brought to Maître Prouham's office. He displayed there neither knowledge nor aptitude— Up to his time, he had been regarded as a young man of great means, who ought to be the shining lights of the department. The public would now come to the conclusion that he had imposed upon them. At first, he said to himself, it is necessary to inform Madame Arnoux about it. And for a whole week he kept formulating in his own mind dithyrambic letters and short notes in an eloquent and sublime style. The fear of avowing his actual position restrained him. Then he thought that it was far better to write to the husband. knew life and could understand the true state of the case at length after a fortnight's hesitation bah i ought not to see them any more let them forget me at any rate i shall be cherished in her memory without having sunk in her estimation she will believe that i am dead and will regret me perhaps as extravagant resolutions cost him little he swore in his own mind that he would never return to paris and he would not even make any inquiries about madame Nevertheless, he regretted the very smell of the gas and the noise of the omnibuses. He mused on the things that she might have said to him, on the tone of her voice, on the light of her eyes, and, regarding himself as a dead man, he no longer did anything at all. He arose very late and looked through the window at the passing teams of wagoners. The first six months especially were hateful. On certain days, however, he was possessed by a feeling of indignation even against her, then he would go forth and wander through the meadows half covered in winter time by the inundations of the seine they were cut up by rows of poplar trees here and there arose little bridge he tramped about till evening rolling the yellow leaves under his feet inhaling the fog and jumping over the ditches as his arteries began to throb more vigorously he felt himself carried away by a desire to do something wild he longed to become a trapper in America, to attend on a pasha in the East, to take ship as a sailor, and he gave vent to his melancholy in long letters to De Laurier. The latter was struggling to get on. The slothful conduct of his friend and his eternal Jeremiah appeared to him simply stupid. Their correspondence soon became a mere form. Frederick had given up all his furniture to De Laurier, who stayed on in the same lodgings. From time to time his mother spoke to him. At length, he one day told her about the present he had made, and she was giving him a rating for it when a letter was placed in his hands. "'What is the matter now?' she said. "'You're trembling.' "'There is nothing the matter with me,' replied Frederick. De Laurier informed him that he had taken Sénécal under his protection, and that for the past fortnight they had been living together. So now Sénécal was exhibiting himself in the midst of things that had come from d'Arnoux's shop. He might sell them, criticize, make jokes about them, Frederick felt wounded in the depths of his soul. He went up to his own apartment. He felt a yearning for death. His mother called him to consult him about a plantation in the garden. The garden was, after the fashion of an English park, cut in the middle by a stick fence, and the half of it belonged to Père Roque, who had another for vegetables on the bank of the river. The two neighbours, having fallen out, abstained from making their appearance there at the same hour but since Frederick's return, the old gentleman used to walk about there more frequently, and was not stinted in his courtesies towards Madame Moreau's son. He pitied the young man for having to live in a country town. One day he told him that Madame d'Ambrose had been anxious to hear from him. On another occasion he expatiated on the custom of Champagne, where the stomach conferred nobility. At that time you would have been a lord since your mother's name was de Fouvet. "'And tis all very well to talk, never mind. "'There's something in a name, after all,' he added, "'with a sly glance at Frederick. "'That depends on the keeper of the seals.' "'This pretension to aristocracy contrasted strangely "'with his personal appearance. "'As he was small, his big chestnut-coloured frock-coat "'exaggerated the length of his bust. "'When he took off his hat, a face almost like that of a woman "'with an extremely sharp nose could be seen. "'His hair, which was of a yellow colour, resembled a wig.' he saluted people with a very low bow, brushing up against the wall. Up to his fiftieth year, he had been content with the services of Catherine, a native of Lorraine, of the same age of himself, who was strongly marked with smallpox, that in the year 1834, he brought back with him from Paris a handsome blonde with a sheep-like type of countenance and a queenly carriage. Ere long, she was observed strutting about with large earrings, and everything was explained by the birth of a daughter who was introduced to the world under the name of Elizabeth Olympe, Louise Roque. Catherine, in her first ebullition of jealousy, expected that she would curse this child. On the contrary, she became fond of the little girl, and treated her with the utmost care, consideration, and tenderness, in order to supplant her mother and render her odious. An easy task, inasmuch as Madame Eleonore entirely neglected the little one, preferring to gossip at the tradesmen's shops. On the day after her marriage, she went to pay a visit at the sub-prefecture, no longer the and thou'd the servants, and took it into her head that, as a matter of good form, she ought to exhibit a certain severity towards the child. She was present while the little one was at her lessons. The teacher, an old clerk who had been employed at the mayor's office, did not know how to go about the work of instructing the girl the pupil rebelled got her ears boxed and rushed away to shed tears on the lap of catherine who always took her part after this the two women wrangled and monsieur roc ordered them to hold their tongues he had married only out of tender regard for his daughter and did not wish to be annoyed by them she often wore a white dress with ribbons and pantalettes trimmed with lace and on great festival days she would leave the house attired like a princess in order to mortify a little the matrons of the town, who forbade their brats to associate with her on account of her illegitimate birth. She passed her life nearly always by herself in the garden, went seesawing on the swing, chased butterflies, then suddenly stopped to watch the floral beetles swooping down on the rose-trees. It was, no doubt, these habits which imparted to her face an expression at the same time of audacity and dreaminess. She had, moreover, a figure like Marthe, so that Frederick said to her at their second interview, "'Will you permit me to kiss you, mademoiselle?' The little girl lifted up her head and replied, "'I will.' But the stick hedge separated them from one another. "'We must climb over,' said Frederick. "'No, lift me up.' He stooped over the hedge, and raising her off the ground with his hands, kissed her on both cheeks, then put her back on her own side by a similar process— and this performance was repeated on the next occasions when they found themselves together. Without more reserve than a child of four, as soon as she heard a friend coming, she sprang forward to meet him, or else, hiding behind a tree, she began yelping like a dog to frighten him. One day, when Madame Moreau had gone out, he brought her up to his own room. She opened all the scent bottles and pomaded her hair plentifully. Then, without the slightest embarrassment, she lay down on the bed, where she remained stretched out at full length, wide awake. I fancy myself your wife, she said to him. Next day he found her all in tears. She confessed that she had been weeping for her sins, and when he wished to know what they were, she hung down her head and answered, Ask me no more. The time for first communion was at hand. She had been brought to a confession in the morning. The sacrament scarcely made her wiser. Occasionally she got into a real passion, and Frederick was sent to appease her. He often brought her with him on his walks. While he indulged in daydreams as he walked along, she would gather wild poppies at the edges of the cornfields, and when she saw him more melancholy than usual, she tried to console him with her pretty childish prattle. His heart, bereft of love, fell back on this friendship inspired by a little girl. He gave her sketches of old fogies, told her stories, and devoted himself to reading books for her. He began with the Romantique, romantiques, a collection of prose and verse celebrated at the period. Then, forgetting her age, so much was he charmed by her intelligence, he read for her in succession Atala, Cinq-Mars, and Les de d'Automne. But one night, she had that very evening heard Macbeth in Letourneur's simple translation, she woke up exclaiming, The spot! The spot! Her teeth chattered, she shivered, and fixing her terrified glances on her right hand, she kept rubbing it, saying, Always the spot! At last, a doctor was brought, who directed that she should be kept free from violent emotions. The townsfolk saw in this only an unfavorable prognostic for her morals. It was said that young Moreau wished to make an actress of her later. Soon another event became the subject of discussion namely the arrival of uncle barthélemy madame moreau gave up her sleeping apartment to him and was so gracious as to serve up meat to him on fast days the old man was not very agreeable he was perpetually making comparisons between havre and the air of which he considered heavy the bread bad the streets ill-paved the food indifferent and the inhabitants very lazy how wretched trade is with you in this place he blamed his deceased brother for his extravagance pointing out by way of contrast that he had himself accumulated an income of twenty-seven thousand livres a year at last he left at the end of the week and on the footboard of the carriage gave utterance to these by no means reassuring words i am always very glad to know that you are in a good position you will get nothing said madame moreau as she re-entered the dining-room he had come only at her urgent request, and for eight days she had been seeking, on her part, for an opening. Only too clearly, perhaps, she repented now of having done so, and remained seated in her armchair with her head bent down and her lips tightly pressed together. Frederick sat opposite, staring at her, and they were both silent, as they had been five years before on his return home by the Montero steamboat. This coincidence, which presented itself even to her mind, recalled Madame Arnoux to his recollection. At that moment, the crack of a whip outside the window reached their ears, while a voice was heard calling out to him. It was Père Roque, who was alone in his tilted cart. He was going to spend the whole day at La Fortelle with Monsieur Dambreuse and cordially offered to drive Frederick there. "'You have no need of an invitation as long as you are with me. Don't be afraid!' Frederick felt inclined to accept this offer. But how would he explain his fixed sojourn at Nogin? He had not a proper summer suit. Finally, what would his mother say? He accordingly decided not to go. From that time, their neighbour exhibited less friendliness. Louise was growing tall, Madame Eleonore fell dangerously ill, and the intimacy broke off to the great delight of Madame Moreau, who feared lest her son's prospects of being settled in life might be affected by association with such people. She was thinking of purchasing for him the registership of the Court of Justice. Frederick raised no particular objection to this scheme. He now accompanied her to mass. In the evening, he took a hand in a game of all fours. He became accustomed to provincial habits of life and allowed himself to slide into them. And even his love had assumed a character of mournful sweetness, a kind of soporific charm. By dint of having poured out his grief in his letters, mixed it up with everything he read, given full vent to it during his walks through the country. He had almost exhausted it, so that Madame Arnoux was for him, as it were, a dead woman whose tomb he wondered that he did not know. So tranquil and resigned had his affection for her now become. One day, the 12th of December, 1845, about nine o'clock in the morning, the cook brought up a letter to his room. The address, which was in big characters, was written in a hand he was not acquainted with and frederick feeling sleepy was in no great hurry to break the seal at length when he did so he read justice of the peace at havre third arrondissement monsieur monsieur moreau your uncle having died intestate he had fallen in for the inheritance as if a conflagration had burst out behind the wall he jumped out of bed in his shirt with his feet bare he passed his hand over his face doubting the evidence of his own eyes Believing that he was still dreaming, and in order to make his mind more clearly conscious of the reality of the event, he flung the window wide open. There had been a fall of snow, the roofs were white, and he even recognized in the yard outside a wash-tub which had caused him to stumble after dark the evening before. He read the letter over three times in succession. Could there be anything more certain? His uncle's entire fortune, a yearly income of 27,000 livres and he was overwhelmed with frantic joy at the idea of seeing Madame Arnoux once more. With the vividness of a hallucination, he saw himself beside her, at her house, bringing her some present in silver paper, while at the door stood a Tilbury, no, a brougham rather, a black brougham, with a servant in brown livery. He could hear his horse pawing the ground and the noise of the curb chain, mingling with the rippling sound of their kisses, and every day this was renewed indefinitely. He would receive them in his own house, the dining-room would be furnished in red leather, the boudoir in yellow silk, sofas everywhere, and such a variety of what-nots, china vases, and carpets. These images came in so tumultuous a fashion into his mind that he felt his head turning round. Then he thought of his mother, and he descended the stairs with the letter in his hand. Madame Moreau made an effort to control her emotion, but could not keep herself from swooning frederick caught her in his arms and kissed her on the forehead dear mother you can now buy back your carriage laugh then shed no more tears be happy ten minutes later the news had travelled as far as the faubourg then monsieur benoit monsieur gamblet monsieur chambion and other friends hurried towards the house frederick got away for a minute in order to write to de laurier then other visitors turned up the afternoon passed in congratulations they had forgotten all about roc's wife "'who, however, was declared to be very low. "'When they were alone the same evening, "'Madame Moreau said to her son "'that she would advise him to set up as an advocate at Troyes. "'As he was better known in his own part of the country "'than in any other, "'he might more easily find there a profitable connection. "'Ah, it is too hard!' exclaimed Frederick. "'He had scarcely grasped his good fortune in his hands "'when he longed to carry it to Madame Arnault. "'He announced his express determination to live in Paris. "'And what are you going to do there?' Nothing. Madame Moreau, astonished at his manner, asked what he intended to become. A minister, was Frederick's reply, and he declared that he was not at all joking, that he meant to plunge at once into diplomacy, and that his studies and his instincts impelled him in that direction. He would first enter the Council of State under Monsieur Damreuse's patronage. So then you know him? Oh yes, through Monsieur Roque. That is singular, said Madame Moreau he had awakened in her heart her former dreams of ambition. She internally abandoned herself to them, and said no more about other matters. If he had yielded to his impatience, Frederick would have started that very instant. Next morning, every seat in the diligence had been engaged, and so he kept eating out his heart till seven o'clock in the evening. They had sat down to dinner when three prolonged tolls of the church bell fell on their ears, and the housemaid coming in informed them that Madame eleonore had just died this death after all was not a misfortune for any one not even for her child the young girl would only find it all the better for herself afterwards as the two houses were close to one another a great coming and going and a clatter of tongues could be heard and the idea of his corpse being so near them threw a certain funereal gloom over their parting madame moreau wiped her eyes two or three times frederick felt his heart oppressed when the meal was over catherine stopped him between two doors Mademoiselle had peremptorily expressed a wish to see him. She was waiting for him in the garden. He went out there, strode over the hedge, and, knocking more or less against the trees, directed his steps towards Monsieur Hock's house. Lights were glittering through a window in the second story. Then a form appeared in the midst of the darkness, and a voice whispered, "'Tis I!' She seemed to him taller than usual, owing to her black dress, no doubt. Not knowing what to say to her, he contented himself with catching her hands and sighing forth, "'Ah, my poor Louise!' she did not reply. She gazed at him for a long time with a look of sad, deep earnestness. Frederick was afraid of missing the coach. He fancied that he could hear the rolling of wheels some distance away, and in order to put an end to the interview without any delay, "'Catherine told me that you had something.' "'Yes, tis true, I wanted to tell you!' He was astonished to find that she addressed him in the plural, and, as she again relapsed into silence, Well, what? I don't know. I forget. Is it true that you're going away? Yes, I'm starting just now. She repeated, Ah, just now? For good? We'll never see one another again? She was choking with sobs. Goodbye. Goodbye. Embrace me, then. And she threw her arms around him passionately. End of chapter 6